Well, we had a great time with Stephen last week, didn't we? That was a great message. Such perfect timing. We look at testing and trials in our own lives to realize that God has a plan. We don't have to understand it. We're just called to be faithful, obey today. So we're back in James. Just for a quick review, James chapter 1, the book of James, we've entitled Authentic Faith. Authentic Faith. Chapter 1, there were three challenges. How do we respond to trials? Do we let patience have its perfect work that we might be filled out, strong, equipped for every good work? Secondly, how do we respond to temptations? We say, well, I'm just tempted and we fold. Or do we blame God? When we understand from the scripture, God doesn't tempt anybody with sin. And thirdly, how do we respond to the word of God? When we hear the word of God, is it like the 10 suggestions? Or when we look at the commands of Christ, our desire is because we love him to obey him and his commands are not a burden. Well, listen, nobody comes to Christ fully mature. We all come with our sins and our weaknesses, our temptations and our prejudices. There are many Christians who grow a little bit. It's always been surprising to me how quickly a new Christian can fall into a rut. You know what a rut is? A rut is a grave with the ends kicked out. You say, well, you know, we're just, we're just here. We got it all figured out, how to dress, how to cut our hair. You know, we got those little legalistic things figured out. Now, I'm just, I'm good. Don't challenge me anymore. And we learn how to tune out or become a pitchfork Christian. You know what that is, don't you? Shepherds shoveling some hay at you and you say, oh, well, I think they need that over there. Hey, that'd be a good one for them over there. And we just kind of shove it off when we need to be feeding on the word, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us. Because you can quench the spirit. You say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not ready for that. I've got, you know, the basics figured out. And I don't need to be convicted about that. Or to respond and say, you know, this is the word of God. My responsibility is to be obedient. Like the fellow that came to Jesus, he wanted his child healed, and he was so desperate, and he came to Jesus, and Jesus asked him this question, do you believe? He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or in Luke, when he's challenging the disciples with forgiveness, that's one of the biggest challenges in our lives, because about the time you think you've forgiven somebody, here comes Satan with a little net. You know what a little net is? That's the things we're used to, how we do things. Joe Stoll, the former president of Moody Bible Institute, preached a message out at a shepherd's conference one year. He talked about little nets. How that when the disciples, Jesus rose again from the dead, they saw him, they were thrilled, and then they figured, well, he can't use us. We all forsook him and fled, and Peter even denied him in front of a little girl. And so Peter said, well, I'm going fishing. And they all said, yeah, we know how to do that. We'll go fishing too. And Jesus had to show up on the shore help him catch some fish, and then he fed him some fish that he'd been baking, and he challenged Peter, do you love me? Let go of your nets. You said you were going to follow me. When they started, they forsook their nets. But bitterness is one of those nets. We know how to use it. Satan shows and says, remember, they did hurt you. And you say in your mind, well, I forgave them. How come this is bothering me again? Because you still have the flesh. And you have to determine in your mind, like Daniel did, not to defile himself with the king's meat. You just got to turn ahead aside. I've already dealt with that. That's under the blood. I'm not grabbing onto that net. Because every time they grab that net and you say, oh yeah, I deserve to be a little bit bitter. 
and then it turns inside, doesn't it? And so we have to trust the Lord for the keeping of our soul. And we learn to forgive over and over. There in Luke, they said, well, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive? Like seven? That's a big thing for one, the same thing, seven times. And the Lord says, 70 times seven in a day. 490 times a day, what was he saying? You keep forgiving people as long as God keeps forgiving you. And you know what the disciples' response was to that? Same response we, had, we need to have. Lord, increase our faith. It wasn't about miracles at that point. To have the faith to really trust God, the keeping of my soul, that I could continue to keep forgiving people who take advantage. You know, the worldly say, saying is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me for letting. That's, not, that's wicked. If you buy into that, that's wicked. If you're going to be in this Christian life, the big challenge is how do we keep loving people? Because when we do that, we demonstrate authenticity. If we're going to be people of faith, we're going to have to have right thinking that results in right response. That's what love is. You know that? Love is not a warm puppy. It's not just a feeling. Godly love is the ability to respond to the ones in need just like Jesus responded to us. John 3.16, the basic God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We weren't lovely. We were his enemies. We sing a song every once in a while. Jason's so good to me. I never know the name of the song. I just say, well, here's the phrase, you know. We are a rebel to God's will. And if it weren't for God's love, we'd be a rebel still, right? If God hadn't reached out and changed my life with the gospel, I'd be a rebel. doesn't matter where you grew up. You grew up in church in a pastor's home like I did. I was a rebel against God. We are. In chapter 2, we find two main subjects. The first one is prejudice. We're going to talk about this morning. Verses 1 through 13 and 14 through 26 is practice. The Jewish people and even these Christians here were very good about their doctrinal statement, but putting into practice is another thing. So that's, he's going to come now and bring the, the word of God, remember he said it was like a mirror, a man looks into it, and he sees God for who he is and sees who, himself for who he is, and then what do you do? You say, God, help me. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Now, what does it mean to confess our sin? It means agree with God. That's all it means. It doesn't, say, it doesn't mean go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry. God knows you're sorry. That's why he had to send Jesus. But it's to say, God, you say that sin, I agree, that sin. In my life, that attitude, that prejudice, that sin, Lord. And here is the blessing of grace. He says, then clean yourself up. No, that's not what he says. That's not grace. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's his job. You know how I think it works out practically? The more he forgives you, the more you love him. And pretty soon you begin to hate that. That comes between you and your love for Jesus. You begin to hate your own sin. But first, it has to be a recognition of that sin, Lord. You say it's sin, I agree with you. In verses 1 through 13, we have here prejudice. Let me say at the beginning, prejudice has no place in the church. 
no place in the church. They say that in America, the hour of church, 1045, most places, 1045, unless they have an early service or a later service, is the most segregated hour in America. And it's not just because certain races don't like other races in their, in their church, like maybe white people keeping black people out. It's also because there's some races that don't want to be around their race. What is that? It's called normal. We just like to have our little comfort zone. When I came to this church, this build, the building we had at that time was four blocks from the campus. And after being a little bit, because I thought God called me here to minister to this great mission field we have from all over the world. I said, hey, where's the college kids? Deacon's wife said, hey, mister, we like our little church. Why? Because they've been in a church before. They started growing with college kids, made them uncomfortable, so they left and started another church. I'm like, wow. And you know what God did first? After about three years, he cut the dead wood off. And the morning, the morning on Easter Sunday, they were all gone. Here comes the college kids. College kid didn't know there was dead wood there. But God did. I didn't know what God was going to do, but God did. There's all kinds of things we can be prejudiced against. And all it is is fear. Prejudice is a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or personal experience. In other words, you may have a bad experience with a person of the race, so then you just color the whole race that way. I was thinking this morning, the stories that Fred Lee, one of our seminary students, he grew up in a little city in uh, South Carolina, a little black kid in a, in a white culture, and his mom wanted him to play baseball, and he said, really, the best coaches were on the white team, so she got me signed up on a white team. And, you know, we progressed so far. You think we progressed, go back to the South sometime. And uh, he said, they even had me in their homes, but when they had me in their homes, I could tell I had separate silverware and separate plates to eat on. <laughs> you think America's really doing good? Ooh. I don't know if those people's faith were. I remember uh, we had a fellow in our church, Larry Bach. We call him Larry, my hunting buddy, Bach. And uh, Larry's a faithful, godly man. He moved, his company moved him down south in a little town in Georgia. And so we went to visit him, and uh, we stayed with him. And, and there's this, you know, big congregation. And it was kind of out in the country, so personally, I'd not known the culture. I didn't notice that there weren't any other black people there. He said, Paul, we may have to find another church. He didn't have to been there too long, and the preaching was good, and the singing was good, but he said there was a fellow that came home from the military. He was an officer, and his, his good friend was an officer, and he brought him home to his home, and he got to Sunday morning, and his friend was a black fellow, black captain in the army, and he said, um, man, I didn't think about this. I can't remember his name, but he said, I didn't think about this, but he'd grown, this, this other officer had grown up in the South, too. He said, I don't think it's a good idea if you come to our church. And he said, I understand. At the same time that morning we were in church, they're making announcements about big ministry they're having to little black kids in Atlanta. So it's okay if we minister to people out there, but let's not have them come in here. I was growing up in high school, and my dad had been talking to somebody who pastored inner city Chicago, and I don't know what he was doing sharing it with me, but he said he talked to this pastor, and the pastor said, listen, you just got to be careful, Ralph, because, you know, uh, you get a neighborhood that wears black people, and they come in the church, and pretty soon they're deacons. 
And my response was, and? Isn't that what you want? Whoever, you want your congregation to reflect the racial diversity of the, the, the city you live in. And if people are coming in, don't you want them to grow and come into leadership? That's what the Bible says. Now, God couldn't use or didn't use Jerusalem to be the missionary sending church. He had to scatter the church at Jerusalem, and it was up in Antioch. And you read just the elder board that was there in Antioch. And you know what? It was diverse, multinational elders. Isn't that sweet? God had to get people to the place where they didn't see all that prejudice because the Jews really had that idea that he's our God. He's not their God. I don't even know what they're here for. And even after Peter came to Christ and had the Holy Spirit, the Lord had to teach him. So it's okay if you say you have some things to learn still. God had to teach him. So the gospel is going to start crossing those racial lines out of Jerusalem into other nations and they didn't get that. Yet God had promised that clear back in the book of Genesis. He said, Abraham, in your seed, all the earth is going to be blessed. And those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. But they didn't think that. They thought God saved them because they were so wonderful. What did Paul say from Isaiah? Look to the pit from which he drew you out of. Abraham was just a pagan like all the other pagans. God just set his grace on him. And he wanted to bless this nation so all the other nations would say, hey, what about their God? But they rejected it. Jesus came to the temple. He cleansed the temple. Why? Because he said God created this temple so that it would be a place of prayer for all the nations. But you turned it into Walmart because you didn't want those kind of people around. The first, the first message given to Gentiles is Peter, being the leader, kind of the, kind of the spokesman for the church, brought it out. Remember, he was hungry. And I think Simon the Tanner, that's where he was staying. We've been to where we think the door of that place was. There's nothing there, just this door. So if you walk all the way up to the sea, along the Sea of uh, Mediterranean Sea, enjoy the walk because when you get there, it's a door. We think Simon Tanner's house was here. Anyway, Simon was broiling something outside, and I'm sure, and it smelled really good, and Peter was hungry. He was so hungry, God used that time to put him into a dream, and he had a vision. And three times, this sheet came down full of all kinds of unclean animals. Because God knew what Peter was struggling with. And, he, and, and the Spirit said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. Oh, no, I don't eat anything unclean. And God said to him, what I have cleansed, don't you call unclean. Three times. Third time, the sheet went up to heaven. There was a knock at the door, somebody looking for Peter. And that Roman centurion had sent by the Holy Spirit, to get Peter. And when he gets over there, this is the first message he begins with. I most certainly, Acts 10.34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Isn't that good? But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. What is it? He is Lord of all. Of all. What is the problem? Prejudice is fear. It's fear. Now, maybe when you were a young woman, when you were trying to impress your boyfriend, you thought you'd use fear. You'd make him jealous, see how much he loved you. 
Well, the Bible says that's not finding how much he loves you. That's finding how much he doesn't love you. Because the Bible says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. But the thing is, we have our fears in the flesh, don't we? Those things that make uncomfortable, those things, well, if I just turn my whole life over to the Lord, what will he do? Well, I know he'll send me to India and they have those big cobras there and I hate snakes. Therefore, if I listen to the Lord, he's going to make me do what I don't want to do. Oh, really? Is that your God? Let me tell you the opposite of what's true. God loves you so much. He made you on purpose with a purpose. He gifted you for that purpose. And if you will just surrender to him, the Bible says you delight yourself in the Lord. What you're going to find out, he's the one that gave you those desires. Yeah. You're missing out on joy by not surrendering to him. So you just stay full of fear and keep the walls up. And die and stand before Jesus with nothing to give back to him. The Bible says some will be saved by fire. Because they weren't willing to trust him. But perfect love casts out fear. Remember I told you, when James is speaking about these principles, you know he's got in mind his big brother, Jesus. So he says to us in the first verse, My brethren, you other believers... You can't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and hold these attitudes of prejudice. What a standard. How did Jesus love people? He comes to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and she was Samaritan. And there was a big racial problem because the Samaritans, the Jews, looked at them as half-breeds. And they kind of kept them up there. Even today, we were there uh, at... Uh, Shiloh, and there's a Jewish guide showing us through, and he's, uh, that guy's a blast, man. We had such a good time at Shiloh. But he says to us, oh, yes, we really treat the Samaritans good. They still take pride in the fact that they're not prejudiced anymore because they still are. See how good we are to these lesser people? And so Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm thirsty. He sent the disciples into town. Why? Because he had a divine appointment to talk to this person across racial lines, across the prejudice. And he just simply said, could I have a drink? And she said, who are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, to get a drink? He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you the living water. Well, things led together, and pretty soon she said, oh, we're talking religion. Oh, well, we're separate there. Are you ever intimidated because they... Somebody has another religion. Oh, I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, I'm this kind, I'm Methodist, you know. And that's supposed to put you out. Oh, no. You can still love them. He said, hey, woman, why don't you go call your husband? He said, oh, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you're telling me the truth there. You don't have a husband. You have five husbands. The one you're living with is not your husband. He said, ooh, the Lord's getting kind of harsh. No, he loves this woman. You should be taking notes on evangelism. He loves this woman. He's going to get down to where her real need was. She needed a savior. When it's all said and done, she says, come and see this guy that told me everything about me. She loved the, the fact that the Lord took the surgical word, went right to the bottom of her heart, said, you've got some sin, and I can deal with that. That's not intimidating to the God. God people's sin doesn't push God away. 
And when the rest of the city found out, they wanted Jesus to stay. Think about this. They want him to stay. The rest of Judea was starting to say, in Jerusalem, hey, why don't you just go away, Lord? And they said, oh, just stay with us. And so he stayed a few more days. And he ministered. Because he loved people. That's how Jesus responded. He said, so you can't call yourself a Christian and then not love like Jesus loved. He loved without fear. He loved without prejudice. And he was not intimidated by anybody, by the rulers or poor people that were bitter. He was not intimidated. By people that had prejudice against Jews, he was intimidated by that. He just overcame it. Now, there is a lesson here. We saw it in in the first chapter of James. He said, when we're looking to minister, you know how to do it. First of all, ask God for wisdom. And you have, if you're a Christian this morning, such a personal relationship with God, you don't have to have a little thing memorized. We're going to go here, there, and the other way, and they'll get saved at the end. You don't know the journey God's going to take you on. But you can ask God, God, I really believe you've called me to minister today. Lord, I need words. I need a place to start. God will do that for you. And secondly, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's what Jesus was. And so James is thinking about Jesus and how he ministered to people without prejudice, without fear, and how he loved people. And he said, you can't hold faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of the word glorious is that Jesus is watching from glory. So you get to make it up. You're a believer. You don't get to make up how you're supposed to act like Jesus. You have to go to the word and act like Jesus acted. Use the words that he used. Have the attitudes that he had. And then he uses this practical illustration. He said, in your churches... How you treat people is so important. It demonstrates your heart. He says, so a man comes to your symbol with a gold ring, and it literally means gold-fingered. You've seen rich people that are bling. We call it bling now. They got gold chains, and they got all kinds of rings. They're making a statement. You need to treat me right because I got it, right? And so he comes in, and we do exactly what they want us to. We say, oh, well, we want other people to see what kind of church we are. Now, in the synagogues, if you go visit in Israel, there isn't chairs. There's no pews. There's just kind of a stone bench around the edge. That's for the olders or the elders to sit at. Everybody else kind of sat on the ground and learned. And I guess some people, I guess they had sore feet or gout or something, they would bring a footstool for themselves. And they didn't even offer the poor man. A poor man comes in, he's got dirty, ragged clothes, and you say to him, hey, sit here at my footstool. We want you out of the way. That there's an effort to make them feel unwelcome so they don't come back. That's just one kind of prejudice. We have all kinds of fears. And so James brings the laser light of God's word the word is called a scalpel. It said it's the knife that's sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And we let the word of God come in and it cuts away that bad stuff. Dr. Bragg's always telling us, listen, the best thing you do for infection is open up. Most infection, when it's exposed to air, gets killed. But as long as you keep it covered up, it can fester. That hatred, that prejudice, it's sin. 
But the word of God comes along and it exposes it. The Bible's called a sword and here in James it's called a mirror that we can look in and see God for who he is and see ourselves and the problems, the sins we have for who we, we, we really are. And he says, you do this. And he said, what you've done is you've become judges. Instead of servants to bring the love of God to people, you've become judges with evil motives. What's the evil motive? When you decide who's worthy of your fellowship and ultimately God's fellowship, you think you've figured out who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. Hmm. You know, I think one way of having a judge with evil motives is when you get a target group. Well, I'm just going to minister to this kind of people because I'm comfortable with that. I'm going to be. I'm going to minister to the cowboy crowd. We just want cowboys around. I'm going to minister to the Harley crowd. We just want Harley people around. I'm just going to minister to the up and outer because you know people need. They need the rich people need the gospel. I'm just going to minister to the down and outer. You say, well, Pastor, what's our target group here? It's called lost people. God knows what He's doing. And it's not my style or mode of dress or coolness, because my boys will tell you, I don't have much of that. Every time I quote a movie, it's wrong. Andrew gets so embarrassed. Oh, Dad. So, so not cool. So I gave up on that. But you know, I don't care if it's an athlete, an up and outer, a down and outer, a Harley dude, a cowboy. You know what people need? They need the genuine love of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Share the gospel. You won't believe what God will do when you just scatter the seed of the gospel out there. Clearly, simply. Say, well, that doesn't look like much. Well, a seed doesn't look like much. But Paul said it's dynamite. It's dunamis. Secondly, in verses 5 through 8, he talks about the royal law. He said, listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Doesn't mean you're going to heaven because you're poor. But there's a better chance if you're a poor person... You're going to have thoughts about God because you can't help yourself, right? What did Jesus say? He said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Why? Because they're self-sufficient. And whether you're rich in money or you're rich in religion, about the time you feel secure in yourself, you don't need the Lord. That's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? The people that recognize their bankrupt spiritual condition, they cannot help themselves. And the disciples say, well, wow. If it's just hard for a camel to go through a needle, then those that would be rich to get saved, because everybody wants to be rich, who could be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why I love sharing the gospel. I never get over the joy of new life. I never get over somebody saying, would you pray for my brother in our small group? You know, we're praying for people. And then that person will show up. And John Bragg will say, 
hey, you're that guy we were praying for. And we go, really, that's that guy? And then see him get saved. You know what happens when you see your friend come to Christ and you say, I just don't know if I can do it. You know what's blessed about this church? You see your responsibility where to, to win your friends to the Lord and pray for them and see them come to Christ, share the gospel with them. It's not just the professionals. We're all to be fishers of men. But this is where he really gets down to the nitty-gritty. He said, listen, beloved brethren, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the king which he promised to all who loved him? You want to have a ministry, probably a better chance of poor people coming to Christ than there is rich people because they're not self-satisfied. But rich people need the Lord too. I've seen people come to Christ, they have nothing left. And I've seen people come to Christ, they get all the way to the top and they go, wow, there's got to be something more. That thought, there's got to be such something more is the Lord showing them they're bankrupt. No matter how much they have in this world, they need Jesus. But he says, listen, this is not logical. You've dishonored the poor man. Isn't the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? We've seen a lot of young men go into business around here. And I have one of my friends years ago, just starting in construction, and he got this job with a rich guy out of town, pouring a great big old pad of concrete. And he's so excited about it because, man, here's some money in the bank, you know. That's what you think. So he goes out there and pours the big pad for the guy. He said, well, I'm going to pay. I'm going to have my friend come and check it out. Well, the next day, and listen, it's 45 minutes out of town. The concrete's setting up. They had to work like crazy to get that thing so it didn't ruin. And what concrete does in the sun, it was summertime, it gets those little hairline cracks. That doesn't mean anything. And this guy said, well, I'm not going to pay you. Sue me. And this young entrepreneur was like, you can imagine. That cost him a lot of money to do that, but what's the rich guy going to do? You can't sue him. You'll spend more time to hire an attorney. And the rich guy's got one on retainer, so what does the Bible say? The rich answer roughly. They don't have to be nice. So he had to turn his back and just lose the whole thing. Did the rich guy tear it out? No, he didn't. He was used to doing that to people. And that's what James is saying here. Oh, you want to honor the rich guy because you think he's going to do something for you. When if they're rich without the Lord, they only do for themselves. So what are you doing? This poor guy that comes in, you say, I don't think he's got any potential, but the rich guy, but that rich guy is the guy that's more apt to drag you into prison. And you're dishonoring the poor man? We need to have the attitude about God. We don't want to dishonor either one. But he says, however, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. It's like, hold it. Who's the royal law for? The royal law are for those who are citizens of heaven. In Revelation, Jesus said that he has made us kings and priests unto God. That's you and I. And so if we're citizens of heaven, if we're sons and daughters of the king, if he's made us a kingdom of priests, then we need to be acting like Jesus does. And what does it say? What does the scripture say? This whole passage is based upon this truth. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, spirit. And if you're doing that, you're going to be able to love 
your neighbor as yourself. Loving yourself is not a deal. I know psychologists say, oh, you need to learn to love yourself. No, you didn't have to learn that. That was in you. That's just part of the flesh. You love yourself. A lot of people going through depression, their psychologists say, you need to learn to love yourself. That's the reason they're depression. They just wanted so much more, and they're mad they didn't get more, so now they're depressed. No, we need to learn to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. In order to do that, you're going to have to trust God. You're going to have to trust a faithful creator in the keeping of your soul to do what is right. You have to trust God to do that. It's faith. But, verses 9 through 11, we see the outlaws. Now, we are so good at justifying ourselves and deciding what is good and what is bad, and we're doing okay. And we compare ourselves by ourselves and among ourselves. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, that's really unwise. But that's how we do it. That's the flesh. But here comes the scripture. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Ooh. James is like his big brother. He doesn't mince words, does he? So whenever the Holy Spirit points out that you are acting in prejudice towards someone, whether it's racial prejudice, economic prejudice, somebody has hurt you before, and so you're going to build your own wall and take care of yourself. It's motivated by fear, and just you say, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not dealing with that anymore. He said, that's sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressor. We say, well, hold it, whoa, stop. I didn't kill anybody here. I didn't cheat on my wife. You see, James is trying to put forward authentic Christianity goes all the way to the heart. It's not just what people see on the outside. And he says, if you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. You're an outlaw. You don't have to break all the laws to be an outlaw. You just have to break one because it's kind of a compact single thing. So he explains it. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. And he said if you don't treat people like God treats you, that's sin. Then he brings it to conclusion. If you're going to demonstrate authentic Christianity... You're going to have to have the right thinking and the right actions. And right actions come from right thinking. Right thinking is thinking according to the word of God, not making up the rules for yourself. Like the little fellow came out, he was about three, and he said, Dad, I'm six foot tall. His dad said, well, that's a good one. How'd you figure that? He said, I made my own ruler. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Sometimes we as believers are like pagans. What did the pagan do in the Old Testament? Well, if he had a lot of money, he'd find him, make him a real nice idol of of gold and silver and jewels. And if you're a poor man, you find a piece of wood that doesn't totter. People do the same thing with Jesus. They have a Jesus they're comfortable with. Here's the scripture. Every one of us need to have a change of mind, different parts of our life, because nobody is born mature. That's why he said, let patience have our perfect word. Let the word of God work in your life so God can use you for whatever he wants to use you for because he has created you for this purpose. 
He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. See, that's where it starts. If all of us got what we deserved, we'd be in hell now. But we were judged by the law of liberty. What is that? That's the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we sang it today. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if I really believe it, then I don't have a problem ministering the gospel to other wretches that aren't saved yet. See, because there's only two kinds of people. There's sinners who are saved and sinners who are still lost. And there's no room for prejudice because that's fear. They say, well, pastor, we don't want all kinds of people coming to our church, do we? Yes, we do. Well, pastor, what about Muslims? Some of those people, you know, they might be terrorists. We hear this story all the time. And if, you, if, if your place of getting fed and built up is Rush Limbaugh or any of those pundits on, that are even conservative, I mean, what are you going to get from that fear? That's all you can get from that. Does he make a lot of, yeah, he makes some statements, him and Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, they make some statements, but they're really mostly about themselves. When somebody ever speaks against, can you believe they said that about me? Well, I mean, you're playing football, so I mean, you expect to get kicked in the shin once in a while. It's... But that's not where we get our food from. Yeah, but hey, it's proven that a lot of people come to this country and then they, they, then they go other places and they become terrorists. Yeah. But the chance, you know, God is not intimidated by terrorists. There's a list of people in the scripture who were terrorists that God brought to himself. In the Old Testament, there was a general who was a terrorist with his whole nation against Israel. And he went into Israel and they ripped a little girl out of her home. His name was Naaman. And brought her home and gave gave her to his wife to be her servant. It says, but the general had leprosy. And the little girl, this is such an amazing thing. In the Old Testament, under the law, she said, oh, if only the general could go down to the prophet in Israel, he could be healed. So Naaman thought, well, I've tried everything else. He went down to the prophet. The prophet said, well, I'll tell you what. First, he would have gone talk to him. He said, send a servant out there. And Naaman was really kind of offended by that. You know, you can't even come out here and talk to yourself. I'm Naaman. And he started to go away. Because he said, I'm not going to. He told him to go duck himself seven times in the Jordan River. And he went, well, first of all, the guy wouldn't even talk to me. He's rude. Secondly, I've got all kinds of beautiful rivers at home. Crystal flowing rivers, not the muddy Jordan. But his servant, who had a little more sense than him, said, listen, if he told you to do some great heroic deed, you think, oh, yeah, that's befitting of me. But he's humbled you. He said, you just go do it. So why not try it? And went down. Six times, and the seventh time he came up, he was cleansed. Because a little girl ministered to a terrorist. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest terrorists the world has ever seen. God used him to totally obliterate and carry away captive the children of Israel. But there was Daniel, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. I mean, he'd been ripped out of his home. What do you have to stand for anymore? There was no temple. But in the fourth chapter of Daniel, the king has another dream. And Daniel interprets for him. He says, oh, king, live forever. I pray that you would just humble yourself, that this dream doesn't come true. 
Because the king had a dream. He was a great oak tree, and all the nations found their shade and their sustenance from him. And he said, oh, well, yeah, that's a good dream. Then all of a sudden, he's a wild beast. He's driven from men. And Daniel says, humble yourself now, king. Why? Because he loved the king. God gave him a love for that king who destroyed his nation. Why? Because God's not intimidated to bullies or terrorists. And you read that whole testimony at the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar comes to his mind. God gave him the opportunity for reasons. He says, oh God, you're the God. You're God. You're the only God. You're not just Daniel's God. You're my God. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 9, Saul was still breathing out threats and slaughter against the church. God sends just one little beam of light. He falls to the ground, and what's his first words? Who are you, Lord? So I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to stand up, and you're going to go stay at Straight Street now. And you know what, what Saul did? Exactly that. And then God came to a believer that lived in the town that he was going probably to throw that guy in prison. And he came to him and he said, Ananias, I want you to go to this fellow Saul. He's staying on Straight Street. And I want you to tell him how many things he's going to suffer for me. How much he's going to do for me. <laughs> and Ananias said, Lord, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about this guy. And the Lord said, you just go, Ananias. And here's the precious part of that. He shows up at the door, and when he sees Paul, you know what he says? He says, Brother Saul. Isn't that precious? He was willing to trust God at peril of his life that God had really done what he said he was going to do. He said, Brother Saul. I used to think early in my ministry I had to figure out where somebody's a believer or not to see how I ministered to them. And God taught me in that great harvest of young people, just, just love people. You don't have to figure it out. I've got to figure it out. You can even treat people like they're Christians, and God can still convict them if they're not. Do you know that? We can just love like what? Like Jesus did. Without fear, because Jesus isn't afraid. Paul told Timothy, one of our favorite verses, 2 Timothy 1.7, God hath not given us a spirit of fear. That's not from God, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. What's the disciplined mind? Disciplined by the gospel. Disciplined by the scripture. When our mind begins to be carried away with fear, we remind ourselves of what God said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. That, Lord, you have chosen us not just to go to heaven, but to be a part of what you're doing here in the world. And, Lord, I'm so thankful for this precious congregation that loves people. Lord, increase our love. Lord, we have this opportunity to reach out to people, not just in Laramie and in Wyoming, but people that come here from all over the world, from places that it's illegal to share the gospel. Lord, we have so many Saudi students here. Students from Iran. Lord, in, in Laramie, we have a lot more homosexual people that are here. Give us a love for people. Lord, we're all sinners. 
Help us to love people. Give us the words and the actions that they might see Jesus Christ. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.